Ah, mmm. The first taste of rare bourbon you finally got your hands on. That's nice. At Caskers.com, we make this experience easy. Caskers is a one-stop spirit curator with an impressive selection of exclusive sought-after rare and household names in the realm of premium spirits and champagne. Discover the top flavors of the year now by going to Caskers.com and using code WELCOME10 for $10 off your first purchase. Get $10 off your first purchase with code WELCOME10 at Caskers.com. Hello and welcome to The Price of Football, the show that looks at the money behind the beautiful game with me, Kevin Day and Liverpool University's Kieran Maguire. Kieran, the Euros have started, the wall charts filling up and if you listen hard enough, you can just hear Andrea Bocelli still hold that last note on Nesson Dormer. <laughs> my, my word, that boy can say, I, I, I felt a bit sorry for Bono, basically. I had, to, I had to follow Lee Evans once, I know how Bono feels. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah, the, was, the only downside cool. is that I have turkey in the sweep, and it's not looking well, too good for me. Oh, oh well, no, it's not really. Well, you never know; they they might bounce back. I, they don't look like they've got the energy to do any bouncing. Basically, <laughs> it's it's uh, it's questions day, Kieran. But we do have one piece of news um, uh, to, to tidy up, if you like. And I thought we had done this, but then Guy pointed out that in fact we made a passing comment on our quiz, which doesn't count. Uh, apparently, I, I, I thought the quiz counted as payment, as a pod, but apparently not. Apparently we did it out of the love of our hearts, which of course of course we did. And thank you to everybody who took part in the quiz, by the way. It was very good fun, uh, and Guy will be sorting those prizes out. But the, the subjects we talked about, and as somebody pointed out during the quiz, it was actually four days of free publicity for the company concerned, but... Not long after we spoke about Norwich and reputational damage to that club because of their new shirt sponsors, the deal was pulled. Yes. So Norwich announced at uh, nine o'clock, I think it was on Thursday morning, that the new sponsorship arrangement with BK8, the uh, inverted commas Asian, that we, we never quite got around to finding which country in Asia. Uh, it's, it's funny that, isn't it? Yeah, because there's a lot of them. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Um, the, the Asian gambling company that... Uh, it seems to think it's uh, okay to have young ladies cavorting around with sausages and, and sexualization of women, which was looking pretty tawdry in the 1970s, is somehow yeah. acceptable for a, a Premier League club which prides itself on uh, having a family image. So um, they came and they went very, very quickly. Um, I still believe that they've got John Terry as a brand ambassador, though, um, which is, I guess, is a positive <laughs> for BK8. <laughs> um, but... Uh, what uh, what what Norwich will have been able to do, I strongly suspect, is that there's normally in uh, in contracts a a good behaviour clause. Yeah, we, we've seen them when sometimes uh, sports people have uh, embarrassed themselves with their behaviour. If you think about Tiger Woods, Lance Armstrong, uh, you know, uh, when 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 people have been caught uh, in various degrees of having their trousers down, uh, as mm. it were. Um, and and this and this works both ways. So I think Norwich will be now to invoke that. Uh, BK8 uh, will probably not kicked up a fuss, so it won't, won't have cost Norwich anything. Um, and clearly, their their commercial department will now be working uh, working their socks off trying to find an alternative uh, before the start of the season. Um, 
first of all, let's give John Terry the benefit of the doubt and suggest that he's there for the sausages. Um, <laughs> uh, secondly, why you said this every night, and I'm not, I'm not sure I understand why it won't cost Norwich anything. If they've pulled out of what I presume is a signed contract uh, what, that would have made BKA well-known around the world, why, why is there no money involved in breaking the contract? Um, because uh, both, uh, both, both parties commit to good behaviour. Um, and not damaging the reputation of the other party. So I I suspect that Norwich will have uh, had a quick word with their legal team um, and put this to BK8 that uh, given the the Norwich fans had managed to unearth some fairly uh, unsavoury in terms of, for a family audience, uh, uh, pictures uh, and uh, marketing campaigns involving BK8 that that aren't really in in, in alignment with uh, a Premier League football club or how it wants to present it itself that uh, the, the contract's effectively null and void. Um, it, it wouldn't be in BK8's interest to have kicked up too much of a fuss either because they could have yeah, come out yeah. of this with huge amounts of egg on face. First of all, th- there would have been a boycott um, of, of the shirts. Um, and secondly, uh, social media being what it is uh, yeah, can turn uh, quite negative. Um, so I, I think they, they probably took the view that why... Uh, you know, as you said, you know, they, they have got an awful lot of publicity in relatively little time, probably mm. more than they, they would have expected to have got. So, so that, that there was a positive from their perspective, and now it, it's time to to get out um, and find uh, find an alternative way of promoting their products. You've hit your head on another issue there, Kieran, as well, because I, I, the, the Norwich fans who did the unearthing of those images didn't have to work very hard. You basically only have to Google BKA and those images come up it makes you wonder why the commercial department at Norwich hadn't done the same thing because surely at the very least they would have said to their new sponsors can you take those down because it's not part of our family image yeah it, it um I think I used the phrase uh, blinded by the check um, yes, yeah fair point yeah. Uh, and yeah. um I, I'll uh, I'll forward to you uh, I do actually have some documentation on on the process that was undertaken which which I'm not prepared to put out in the public domain um which didn't really look too good, I think, uh, in terms of the people that should have been doing the checking. Yeah, you, you can forward those to me, Kieran, if, it, if it's got long, complicated words in it. I, I, I would, well, I'll do what I always do, Kieran. I'll say, of course I read it. It's really interesting. It, it's an amortisation-free zone, I can assure you. Oh, great. I'll, I shall read. Well, in that case, I'll, as a special treat, I'll read the first paragraph and the last paragraph. <laughs> um, like me marking exams. <laughs> don't say that out loud, Kieran, for the love of goodness. Uh, it was a bit like us reading the contract that Guy put out. If we should have read, <laughs> we should have read all those paragraphs in the middle, that would have been much easier than the first and last. Uh, as question time is going, as always, we've got some very interesting questions. One in particular, or two in particular, in fact, I'm looking forward to hearing the answers. Or, um, uh, although why they suspect you would know the answer to one particular question, I don't know. <laughs> yes, I do but, wonder at times. Yeah. <laughs> um, our first question comes from Ian Banahan. Uh, I'm really sorry, Ian. I'm so it's, I'm just childish enough to want to say Banahan, Hanahan. <laughs> Because it's just, I, I'm sure that happens to you all the time. Ian. I'm a middle-aged man. I'm heading for my second childhood. That's fine. Um, it's, it's a question about kits, which always get asked, as you know. And actually, it's a question I've wondered myself. And Ian Banhan's question is, do clubs have a commercial or legal obligation to wear each of the kits, other than the home kit, a certain amount of times in a season? It's one of the things that drives me mad about modern football. 
and I, I know this is an old man's round, I can't stand teams wearing their away kit or their third kit when they don't have to, when there's no colour clash. So, so it does make you wonder, as Ian Banahan points out, are there contractual or commercial reasons why they do that sometimes? Uh, no, no, there aren't. I, I did, did a bit of uh, ferreting into this. Um, there used to be a, a maximum of eight times you could away you could wear the alternate kit um, oh. in Premier League matches, but that rule has been abolished. Um, clearly, from the manufacturer's perspective, they want the alternate kits to be seen quite often because it, it's uh, it's it's free marketing and from the club's point of view if if that uh, if that kit proves to be popular remember that the, the clubs are on most clubs are on seven percent in in terms of commission um and we know that Liverpool we think are on 20 percent so um th- there is a commercial reason behind it um but then I sort of dug into it uh, a bit more and uh, a lot of it is to do with the uh potential clash of um shorts and socks and sleeves which which things are which we don't tend to focus on mm. um and this is actually to to help the linesman so if you are trying to to judge a uh uh an offside uh, ha- having the, the the different uh having different short colors is actually quite useful but by all accounts you know, right. you know, I'm, I'm it's it's a long time since since I refereed or was a linesman so but but it, thinking about it it does make sense um and then this issue of sleeves came up and uh, of course, yeah, that's really important for for, for handball decisions. So, um, yeah, one of the things that's always bugged me is that when Brighton play West Ham, we always wear our second kit, and so do they. I go, yeah, this this is absolutely ludicrous. Mm. But if you think about West Ham's kit, it's it's claret and blue, where the the main body of the shirt turns to, tends to be the claret, and the sleeves tend to be blue. Well, mm. Brighton sleeves are normally blue. So if you've got, you know. A dozen players going up for a corner, and there's a handball, and you're the linesman. You've all of a sudden potentially you've got, you've got twelve blue sleeves going mm. for the same ball, and it's mm. and it's very difficult to work out uh, who who is the guilty party. So so that appears to be um, one of the drivers um, in terms of uh, some unusual uh, uses of of away kits, where uh, y- your gut reaction is is why on earth are they doing that? Hmm. I used to get so excited as a younger football fan. If you go to an away game and we had our normal home kit on, but different colour socks, mm. that, used, that used to really, oh, that used to do my head. I mean, we played, um, I think it was Huddersfield. It was only a few seasons ago when we were back in the championship. So many seasons ago. Um, but for some reason, the referee thought there was a clash with, with Huddersfield's away kit. So they played wearing our away kit. Which was yep. at Salas Park, which was which was very odd. They beat us, obviously, so it was like seeing us lose to our reserves. But it was very confusing. Yeah, uh, we, we 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 did the same. Uh, our, our former chairman once thought it was a really good idea to have three kits, all of which were blue. Yeah, probably not the best idea in the world. Yeah, was that Dick Knight? That was Dick Knight. Yeah, yeah. I only asked because I just love saying that name. <laughs> it's terrible. Uh, interestingly, um, I I tweeted a. A photograph of my World Cup wall chart and the fact yes. that I was excited like a toddler. And the <laughs> uh, the colourblind society who we've been talking to uh, on several occasions about kit clashes sent me a photograph of what it looked like to colourblind people. And it's the first real insight uh, I'd had into how you see things, Kieran. It was um, it was very 
illuminated it and made me well also explained why the Baroness had that really bright yellow top on for the, <laughs> for the quiz the other night. <laughs> uh, I have to say the highlight of the quiz was Finley. Finley was so cute and he was so desperate for it to be finished, wasn't he? <laughs> yes, he, he wanted a late night walk. <laughs> he did. I've never, I've never seen the dog yawn more flamboyantly. <laughs> it's very off-putting. Um, our next question, you mentioned Liverpool, Kieran, and our next question is about Liverpool. It's from Jesper Damlund Jefferson. Um, uh, apologies if the J's are, are why. I always get confused with those. But Jesper's question is, uh, do clubs like Liverpool consider their academy as a profit centre or are the gains in finding just one gem, Trent Alexander-Arnold, for example, and the saved transfer layout, enough to justify the investment in the academy? Um, there, there's an element of, of both. Uh, if we take a look at Liverpool's player sales over the course of the last six years, they've come to £425 million pounds. Um, of which uh, a lot of those transfers are, are ones which perhaps go under the radar to a certain extent uh, from from players who have uh, been part of uh, the the Liverpool Academy system. If, if you take, for example, Ryan Kent, uh, he, uh, he he think he, I think he only made one appearance at Liverpool. He went on loan to Rangers. Then they then signed him for six and a half million. If you look at Sam Johnson at, at Manchester United, don't think he ever played a game for Manchester United. He, he spent eight years going out on loan, and then West Brom signed him for around about seven million. And of course, he's just at his first England cap. Um, and, then, and then you come to Chelsea, who have got a similar system. They use the academy, and, and they make a lot of money by sending these players out on loan because mm. you're, you're you're able to to have a loan fee. So at, at one stage in uh, in 2019, Chelsea had 41 players. Uh, fr- uh, out on loan at other clubs, most of whom have come through their academy. Um, and they've generated £688 million in player sales in seven years. That, that's almost £100 million a year. Now, I appreciate you know, that that includes Eden Hazard and that includes um, you know, some of the other high-profile players, but there's, there's a lot of deals that are going through for relatively low figures for players who have never put on a Chelsea shirt as far as the first team are concerned. But if in each of these occasions you're making you know, one, two, three, five million pounds, it very, very quickly pays for itself. So as far as the role of the academy is concerned, uh, I mean, yes, but uh, I, I, there's an element of of both we're going to use these young men as commodities. And, and that's something we've always said, yeah, we, we don't feel particularly at ease with. And then there is this other concept of, of what we refer to in the world of finance as opportunity cost. But by doing X, it means it's saving you having to do Y. Mm. Um, and, and in the case of you know, Trent Alexander-Arnold at Liverpool, we've got, call up, of course, uh, where, uh, Phil Foden at Manchester City, Mason Mount at Chelsea, mm. uh, Marcus Rashford, Mason Greenwood at Manchester United. You can see that the academies, to a certain extent, are paying for themselves. You only have to have one player coming through, I would say, every you know, three to four years um, and who gets into the first team. And, and that saved you. you know, how, how much would it cost to, to have recruited uh, a 23-year-old Marcus Rashford in today's market or, mm-hmm. or, or Phil Foden or Mason Mount? So on each of those occasions, you are probably sa- saving yourself a minimum of £50 million a time uh, for players of that calibre. 
Um, so, so that's what the, 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 the clubs do. Is yes, they are trying. Uh, they are trying to identify players who will get into their first team. But at the back of their minds, they are viewing the the academy effectively as a factory of products which they can go on to sell if they choose to not use themselves. And and the running costs of a of a category one uh, academy. They're normally estimated to be in the region of five to six million pounds, but I think for some of those bigger clubs, they're actually considerably more. Mm. Our next question, Kieran, comes from Wayne Harris, and it concerns Rangers, which concerns me. I just wonder, Kieran, if we could answer this question in a way that doesn't lead to an interminable Twitter feud between Celtic and Rangers fans, as we've been <laughs> as we've been seeing. This week, <laughs> I, I, I think you could have a discussion on which is the hardest Teletubby, and that would that would result in a, in a feud between those two sets of fans. I, I know the answer to that question. It's Tinky Winky. Really? Uh, <laughs> Wayne Harris's question uh, also touches on your club, Kieran. There was Wayne says, "I have a follow up question regarding Rangers selling rights for their games in India. Would it be in Rangers' interest to sign a young?" popular Indian player for their men's team to generate subscribers. Given the impact we saw with South African fans after Brighton signed Percy Tao, could it be financially beneficial to Rangers? Now, of course, a, a player would only ever be signed by a club if he was if he was good enough. But, um, you know, certainly when Palace signed uh, Fanzi and Sinji Hai, we made an awful lot of money uh, from Chinese uh, kids buying Palace shirts. So it does make commercial sense here, it seems, doesn't it? Uh, yes, it does. Um Clearly, it's the manager's choice as to who puts on a first-team shirt. Um, but there, there there have been accusations made on many occasions um, about uh, tying up with, uh, with, with certain countries uh, because you will get a, a dividend in terms of, first of all, um, TV interest, um, broadcast interest. And, and, yeah, we, we, and the same, same applies to us. You know, we, we all remember when Paul Gascoigne went to Lazio and we all yeah. then tuned in to yeah, Channel yeah, Four yeah. to watch uh, yeah. Italian football on a Sunday afternoon. Mm. Um, so you know th- there can be certainly benefits for the broadcasters, and given that Rangers do have the broadcast rights, uh, as far as India are concerned, um, then then this is uh, this has some interest. And in fact, I believe that Rangers have signed a a, a, a woman player for their women's team oh, okay. uh, from India. So, so you know, is 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 this linked? Um, it, it shouldn't. It shouldn't dictate recruitment, uh, and I suspect it doesn't. But if you're chasing two players, one of whom where you think you can get a a dividend in terms of either extra broadcasting money mm. or extra commercial income, either through uh, merchandise sales or commercial partners, th- then uh, it makes a lot of interest. And uh, you know, Wayne makes reference to. Um, uh, to Percy Tao, who, um, who who hasn't made a huge impact, I think it's fair to say, uh, at Brighton to date, and, and I think we're in the process of selling him. Uh, if, if stories in the newspapers are heard, but you know, I can assure you that every time, even if he was on the bench, uh, uh, our social media feeds were were full of uh, very very impassioned South African uh, football fans. Um, and clearly, it, it, you know, it had it had registered on, on the on the radar uh, in South Africa, and there was an awful lot of interest, as as you would expect to be the case. Uh, mm. So, um, you know, so the long and the short of it is, 
there is logic in, in, in what Wayne Harris has, mm. has suggested. Um, I, I don't think uh, Stephen Gerrard would have much truck with it if uh, if somebody was trying to persuade him to to bring such a player uh, mm. in, into the first team uh, you know, in terms of starting a match. But uh, from a squad perspective, uh, there, there could be benefits. It must have been a nightmare for poor Percy Tow stuck on the bench at Brighton week in, week out, watching that interminable ticky-tacky passing football going on. Well, yes. inward, inwardly yelling shoot every time they got near the 18-yard box. <laughs> Do we have any numbers on um, how many subscribers there are in, in, in India for the Rangers at all? No, no. It's uh, it, it's still a relatively new deal. So right. I, I, I will try and dig out uh, figures when, when they become uh, evident. Good, yeah, because it would be interesting to know that, wouldn't it? Uh, yeah. Jacob Frick is a, a regular listener, I know. Thank you, Jacob. Uh, and Jacob has a question that I found very interesting. Um, I will take issue with one part of it, as you'll find out. Um, Jacob Frick says, in the Premier League, EFL, and other top leagues, how much do the actual footballs cost? Again, one of those questions that you think we should have answered this before. Yes. Uh, how much do the actual footballs cost? The most basic question of, of, of them all. And how much do those little cars cost that they're driving them onto the pitch? <laughs> Uh, that's just the ref- I just wish I'd been at the referees meeting when they said, "Oh, one more thing, lads. The, the balls are going to be arriving by a miniature car." Nothing, um, nothing says two bob more than that, does it? <laughs> just, just really. Oh dear! And Jermaine Jenner's trying to oh, well, uh, Guy Mowbray trying to think of something funny to say and resolutely failing. God bless him. Um, <laughs> but, so back to Jacob's question in full: In the Premier League, EFL, and other top leagues, how much do the actual footballs cost? Are they provided by the leagues or is each club responsible for paying for them? As an American, I'm very used to the tradition, of course, of baseballs that go into the stands being kept by spectators, NFL players giving footballs to fans, etc. Why is it different with real footballs? Now, I'm glad uh, Jacob used the word real football because I have an issue with NFL fans and rugby fans. Indeed, it drives my mate, Dave Ricketts, uh, up the wall. He's a big rugby fan uh, because every time he says the word rugby ball, I say, it's not a ball, Dave. It's not round. <laughs> uh, find something else to call it. There's balls quite clearly around, and a rugby ball isn't always an NFL ball. But you know that that technical detail aside, <laughs> yes, <laughs> uh, um, it, it is a good question. Now, I mean, I, I, I'm assuming that the club has to provide a certain amount of balls by league rules, surely for each game, aren't they, Kieran? Uh, yes, they do. Uh, I mean, presently, the the Premier League uh, has a uh, a ball rights deal with Nike, which lasts until twenty twenty four. I think <sighs> Manscaped have really missed the trick here, haven't they? If they, was, <laughs> if they were still sponsoring us, we'd be all over it with, with this question, wouldn't we? But, yeah. <laughs> um, and if you want to buy a Premier League standard uh, Nike. Uh, Premier League flight ball, it will cost you £125. Goodness me, will it? <laughs> Which is just ridiculous. Wow. Um, but um, uh, it, as far as the relationship with the individual clubs are concerned, Nike has an obligation to uh, provide a, a set number of balls for each match, um, but also they, they will supply balls, uh, a set number of balls to the clubs as well, because if you if you talk to professional footballers, one of the things they say is that there's a difference between a mitre ball, a puma ball, an Adidas, and yeah. and even each incarnation of uh, the, uh, the the Nike ball. Um, and, and you know, and you know, you and I are both old enough to to remember 
uh, various World Cups where you'd see a new, you know, because Adidas always used to have them, didn't they? And, yeah. uh, and then the, 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 these rumours taking place before the tournament took place that there's a new Adidas ball out and it's, it's going it's to make life absolutely uh, an absolute nightmare for goalkeepers because it's got a secret swerve in it. Uh, and uh, there would be huge uh, investigations into whether this was true or not. And, and then the football would start and, we'd all, of course, we'd all forget about it. Yeah, I think um, it was the 2010 World Cup. I think before that, they they announced it's going to be the roundest ball ever. Yes. Uh, <laughs> yeah, that's in, yeah. And presumably, Kieran, that they they're having to use more balls this season, aren't they? Because of COVID protocols. Yes, I, I'm guessing. Yeah, yeah. I mean, as as far as as far as Nike is concerned, you know, the, the cost of providing the balls to the clubs is is a non-issue at the elite level. Yeah. Uh, because they just want to to have as many people seeing their products as possible. So it's, um, I, I think it's more of a concern uh, for clubs in in the lower tiers. So you know, we, we spoke that historically, uh, Mitre have always been the the ball provider to to clubs in the EFL, um, and I, that's now been taken over by Puma. Uh, they've just announced a, a new a new tie up there. Um, I think under, under that relationship, it's uh, it's far more important because. Uh, you don't get uh, additional, you know, if if, uh, if Manchester United phone up Nike and say, yeah, we need another 30 footballs for the cliff, you know, Nike will say, yeah, no problem. Yeah. Um, if you are Harrogate or if you are, you know, Southend um, and and you phone up and to, to Mitre and say, can we have another extra 30 footballs? The answer will be no. You will get a set amount and, and you've got to make sure they last the season. That's why you often see the kit man, yeah. uh, you know, pre-match will go round and, and, you know, he'll, he'll count them out and he'll count them back in again. Um, so that's that's the first issue. In in terms of of Jacob's uh, uh, second element to the question about keeping the balls, again, there's this issue of cost um, because uh, again, you and I are both old enough to remember going to Shrewsbury away, and sometimes when you kick the ball over the stand, yeah. there's a there's a river, and they, they used to have a little guy, didn't they, in a rowing boat. In a coracle. Um, I think you'll find it was a coracle. A, a coracle, right, it was, yeah. It was a coracle, an old-fashioned little round thing. And uh, once a season, Brian Moore, the my favourite football person ever who presented the London football highlights, would lose his shit. Because they would, they would the, the once a time that Shrewsbury's on, he would just get, they'd just show it over. And it's like, Brian, you, we saw this last year. There's a man in a coracle collecting the ball, but... Brian just clearly thought this illustrated why he was living in London better than anything. But it was, <laughs> it was I, I remember the first time I went to Shrewsbury, Shrewsbury, whichever your inclination, we were praying that the ball would go out just so we could see the Coracle Man live. Mm. That was that was what passed for entertainment back those days. <laughs> I did it. Um, so so there there is a cost issue um, as as far as the the clubs are concerned. But um, yeah, we we all know about fan culture here in in this country. Um, I think the other thing that uh, would be, of course, the concern is would the ball be thrown onto the field of play uh, in order to distract players, you know, perhaps when the opposition were attacking. So so that's why uh, the clubs are, are very keen for it to not take place. Uh, remember when, uh, was it was it Liverpool played Sunderland and somebody there. threw a beach ball? Yeah, I was there. Onto the pitch. Yeah, I was behind the goal when it happened, yeah. Oh, were you? Oh, yeah. wow, cool. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and the referee uh, gave the goal, didn't he? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so the, for, for people who, uh, this is what, 2010, 2011, mm. probably, uh, some, somebody shot the ball, took a ricochet off a beach ball and ended up in the back of the net. Uh, and, uh, the referee, as you said, allowed it, which, 
uh, didn't go down well with the was it was it Sunderland was it uh, Darren Bent who scored it? I think I can't remember. I I, I know it's Sunderland. I'm fairly sure it was Liverpool. But yeah, because it 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 led to a lot of people reminding uh, people like Chris Kamara what the rules were that because it, it's an outside agent which does yeah. It. All, um, Yes, I do. Um, it always makes me laugh, Kieran, when modern footballers talk about the ball moving through the air. They, they should try playing football with one of those Woolworths balloon types. <laughs> we used to play with moving through the air. There's a light. There's a light breeze. We have to cancel the game. Just, just, yeah. um, our next question comes from Andrew Woodman, uh, and it, it's a, it's about Derby, Kieran. But but for once, it's a question that might give Derby fans. Uh, a reason for for some kind of optimism. Um, it's, it's tenuous, at least, but you never know. In a terrible couple of years for Derby, this might be the glimmer of hope they've been waiting for. Because Andrew's question is that, um, given that in the 2013-14 season, Derby finished third and were beaten by QPR in the playoff final, and it's been judged that QPR broke the rules that season, could Derby be justified in claiming compensation seeing as they were beaten by rule breakers in the same way Sheffield United claimed compensation from West Ham when they were relegated after West Ham infringed the rules signing Carlos Tevez. Yep, I'm pretty certain Derby will have investigated this um, because... that it, it would have been it would be silly of them not to you know to to at least consult a, a sports lawyer to see to see where they stood. Um, for people not familiar with what happened that particular year, um, Queens Park Rangers had borrowed a lot of money from the owners, hmm. and the owners then said we don't want that money back, uh, and so Derby sorry Queens Park Rangers treated that as income. And it allowed them at the time um, to, they thought, satisfy financial fair play. But it did mean that they had a huge financial advantage that season mm. um, in terms of their their wage bill compared to everybody else um, in the in the championship. You know, we, we took, their wage bill was tens of millions of pounds more, um, and uh, they they were playing uh, quint. You know, they were playing Derby County. Uh, it, it went to the final. I think I think QPR were down to ten men, and were, then in yeah. the last minute, Bobby Zamora scored a winner. Yeah, um, for for QPR. And, and I, I wrote an article on this at the time, and, and I was actually quite surprised because I said, you know, this this is this is unfair on Derby. It's, all, it's also unfair on, on the side that finished seventh yeah. in the championship yeah. that season, who who could you know, potentially have said, well, yeah, we should have been in the playoffs ourselves. Um, and to give credit to to derby fans uh yeah nearly everybody who responded said well you know it, it was a game of football and and football football should be decided by what happens on mm. the pitch which yeah which is something which you know i think we 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 both believe in um and uh yeah on the day we weren't good enough and yeah you know, I, I was i thought i thought it was very magnanimous of, of the derby fans at the time move forward to um, 2018-19, and uh, Middlesbrough finished seventh, and Derby County finished sixth in mm. the playoffs. And I do believe there have been mutterings, I think it's the politest way of describing it, um, from the Middlesbrough owner, Steve Gibson, in that this is one of the years in which Derby County's somewhat unusual amortisation policy has been applied. Um, and he seems to think that uh, Middlesbrough were denied 
a uh, a place in the playoffs on the back of that. And and he seems to be press, pressing the EFL to do something with regards to that. So I'm not quite sure how that one's uh, going forwards. Um, then if we take a look at what happened with Carlos Tevez, um, the reason why I think compensation was given because it was a direct on the pitch issue uh, mm. in terms of third party ownership of Tevez, who who scored the goals which uh, allowed West Ham to to avoid relegation that season, and and because it had such a, a profound impact upon uh, West Ham's form, um, the, the the Premier League and the FA did fine West Ham and effectively made them give compensation to Sheffield United. Ah, mm. the first taste of rare bourbon you finally got your hands on. That's nice. At Caskers.com, we make this experience easy. Caskers is a one-stop spirit curator with an impressive selection of exclusive sought-after rare and household names in the realm of premium spirits and champagne. Discover the top flavors of the year now by going to Caskers.com and using code WELCOME10 for $10 off your first purchase. Get $10 off your first purchase with code WELCOME10 at Caskers.com. See, that's the major difference between the cases, isn't it, with um, Derby QPR and Middlesbrough Derby? Because with, with Tevez, as you say, you can prove the impact that he had. Mm. Whereas with you know two or three players that were bought with money they shouldn't have had, it's almost impossible to to predict what would have happened to those clubs if those players weren't weren't playing because they could have been replaced by people who scored more goals or made more saves. So it's much harder to uh, prove. But um, it's interesting <laughs> that Derby fans are still. Clutching at that straw, and you never know. Um, our next question comes from Matthew Braithwaite. Um, and Matthew says, I've recently been playing Football Manager 21, managing a Champions League club. During player contract negotiations, it seems standard to have the following included. Weekly wage, playing appearance money, non-playing sub-appearance money, goal bonus, clean sheet bonus. On top of that, there were collective bonuses depending on how successful the team was. And it seemed every player had a 5 to 10% wage increase every year. Would you say these are standard contracts? Um, my only comment on that, Kieran, is oh, games are meant to be fun. Just, <laughs> you, you, you've not played football manager recently, I, Kevin. I, I, it's, I, I, it's, no, it's, it's an obsession. I've, I've my For my recent birthday, my, my son bought me uh, a SNES with Zelda on it, and I, I played through Zelda again. That was brilliant. But <laughs> it is. If, I, I wouldn't have half enjoyed it as, half as much if I had to find a weekly wage for Link <laughs> or, or actually work out what his contract was for beating several bosses in a dungeon. It's, it's, it's you just want to get on and bash things basically. But it's um, so yes. Are these? Uh, it sounds like a much more immersive game than I thought it was. So would you say these are standard contracts? It's clearly worrying, Matthew. And um, I think that they're broadly there or thereabouts. Um, I, I got in contact with uh, agent Tony Sharkey uh, with regards to this, and I, and I, I sent him. Uh, Matthew's question because because Tony's clearly far more familiar with individual contracts yeah. than I am, um, and and Tony said, well, it 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 does tend to depend on the deal. Um, what may happen uh, in in say a three year contract, you might have year one ten k, year two twelve, year three fourteen. So there will be step ups built into it. Or it could be that you've got a three-year deal um, and the player's on £10,000 a week, but uh, once he's played 25 games, that goes up to 15. And once he's played 50 games, that goes up to 18. So it could be, it could be performance-based or it could be, um, it, it could be time-based. Um, he did say, however, that, uh, that goal and uh, clean sheet bonuses, which you know, I've always thought were common, uh, are now 
not in favour because it sometimes upsets the the first team manager or coach. Oh. Because if you've got a player who's on you know ten ten grand a goal. Um, and, he, and he's through on goal and somebody's in a better position, is he going to be selfish? So quite often, he's, uh, according to what, what Tony said to me, um, we, we are moving towards uh, collective bonuses, i.e. Uh, it, it's, it's, it's a win um, or it's, it's a position yeah, in yeah, the yeah. table. You'll, you'll get certain bonuses. Um, and again, in terms of the clean sheet bonuses, he says those, those are going out of favour because sometimes uh, you know if, if you're – let, let's say that you're you're one nil down and there's ten minutes to go, um, or sorry, you're one nil up and, and there's ten minutes to go. You you might actually try to sit on mm. just keeping a clean sheet and and not try to get the second goal, or you might have you might be nil nil with ten minutes to go and both sides decide to sit on it because they're all on cl- uh, clean sheet bonuses and it's you know the players are thinking well you know, if, if we if we don't concede and let's just focus on that uh, we, we'll be better off finan- financially. Yeah, that, the goal bonus one is interesting. When Jordan Henderson missed that penalty in the last pre-season, last pre-Euros friendly that England played, if that had been a league game, every single person in the ground would have assumed that he demanded to take the penalty because he was on a goal bonus. Um, yeah. Uh, yeah, so it's that's an interesting one. Um, I'm quite pleased that there's an agent called Sharky. That seems... <laughs> Uh, it seems appropriate, but um, apparently we're hoping to lure Agent Tony Sharkey onto the show um, on uh, our next Thursday, I believe, Kieran. Is that I'm, right? I'm, I'm in negotiations. Um, that would be, be probably well, an agent, so we run rings around <laughs> yes. you, I imagine. But, uh, so, yes, but if you do have any questions for uh, our agent, Tony Sharkey, he will be on hopefully next week or the week after. Uh, please do send them to the usual address, which is questions at priceoffootball.com. Kieran Williams has a classic just-asking-for-a-friend question. Um, <laughs> Kieran wants to know what protocols there are with large transfers to ensure that money laundering isn't happening. Right. Which, which, is, which is a question slightly out of the blue, but it's it's a very valid one considering, I mean, we're talking huge sums of money here. There aren't there aren't many other businesses where, where 30, 40, 50, 100 million pounds is being handed over at one stage for football, although you're going to tell me, Kieran, that those amounts of money are not paid at the same time, are they? So, well, for uh, Manchester United and Leicester City, Leicester demanded all of the cash up front, so so oh, it, really? it can okay. be the case. Right. Um, and if uh, from, from if the rumours, yeah, uh, if the rumours in the in the in the media are true, Manchester United are presently trying to sign uh, Sancho. Yeah. And uh, one of the one of the sticking points is, is how much do they put down as a deposit on the deal? So uh, cash flow is is quite critical uh, for clubs from from the perspective of both the buyer and the seller. One of the advantages that that Chelsea have had over many clubs in recent years is that they've not only been able to match uh, other bids from clubs when trying to recruit players. But uh, having Roman Abramovich behind them, um, historically, and, and this has changed in the last two or three years, historically, he just said, just give them all the cash up front. And you know, if you've got a choice of you know, £40 million over four years or £40 million now, mm. you know, you, you're going to take the, uh, the one which is cash, cash advantageous. Mm. If I had a choice between £100 over four years and £100 now, I know exactly which one I would take. <laughs> Have we not discussed, is, are there not occasions, though, when a club wouldn't want the, all the money up front just for 
financial fair play reasons, etc. No, no, because no. it's actually the, it's the sale the sale price of the the player which dictates financial fair play issues rather than the cash flow. Uh, oh, was, okay, but, that's interesting, right? Um, but but going back to to Kieran's uh, point with regards to money laundering. Um, and um, you know, I'm I'm fully aware of of those clubs that had been linked with money laundering. And again, you know, we'll have that discussion after the show. Yeah. Um, that uh, the, the football authorities have, have tried to address this by by effectively operating as a clearinghouse. So so therefore, if if a if, if there is a transfer and it's an agreed price of thirty million pounds, that money initially would go say to the the Premier League or UEFA or FIFA, um, and then is passed on to the other club to to stop uh, too much of it leaking out of the system. Um, that that's not to stop, however, um, some additional payments being made to to people, uh, especially when we've had the issues of. Um, third-party ownership mm. taking place. Um, and I know, I know that there are some proposals to use blockchain as a means of uh, putting through the, the cash transfers in, in respect of transfers, again, to stop money from mysteriously dripping out of, of, the, uh, of the transfer process. I don't know what blockchain is, Kieran. It's, uh, it's, it's linked to uh, cryptocurrency. It's linked to Bitcoin, Um uh, and sim- and similar uh, financial transactions, whereby effectively um, there is a, there's a form of a key that is used, which only the two parties to the transfer know, uh, and that allows the money to go directly from from one party to another. Uh, it, it has also been linked. It has to be said with. Uh, uh, criminal activity uh, by by some, uh, n- normally the the people that that don't want a, an alternative to uh, traditional money money mm. methods. Well, that all links us very nicely into our next question, which comes from Nick Waits. And Nick Waits asks: Is there any consistency of what a, a transfer fee comprises between different clubs? Does it include VAT, which the buying club will be able to reclaim and would obviously make a significant difference? Does it include the FA levy? Does it always include agents' fees or any other contingency fees that may or may not be payable? Right, um, we're, we're, we're no longer in the EU, so so therefore there will be i think uh, there'll be no vat on transfers from uh, the, the, the england to the eu countries and vice versa but even even if that hadn't been the case um vat is recoverable so if you sign a player for 100 million pounds there would be 20 million pounds of vat on top of that um and, and that would be recoverable by the buying club it does, however, cause an issue for the selling club because the uh, HMRC always demand VAT on the whole deal immediately, mm. even if the the transfer is taking place in instalments. So, oh, so okay. it, it can. Uh, so you know, quite often you say, "Well, we've just sold a player for a hundred million. Uh, you know, why are we not spending all of that money?" It's because in your next VAT quarter, you've actually got to go and give you know, 20 120ths of that across to the, the tax authorities. And then, of course, you find that the buying club has only paid you a third of the transfer now and a third in a year's time. And actually, of that £100 million transfer, you've ended up with about you know, 15 million quid immediately. And, and But you know, the fans are saying, you know, this, this should be spent straight away. Um, as far as to as as to other issues which are included in the transfer fee, if those are 
external costs, such as agent costs, lawyers costs, um, then they would be included as far as the, the value of the fee is concerned. If they're internal costs, so if you've got an internal legal department or finance department, your internal costs are excluded. I never understood the logic of VAT, Kieran. It always reminds me of that brilliant, brilliant Lauren Hardy bit. Again, was that the money that you gave to him to give to her, to give to me that she gave back to you to give to her to give to him? Hmm. It's just it's yes. just an endless merry-go-round of money that no one ever actually gets, isn't it? Well, um, if, if if you and, and I'm sure you've, we, we both have got better things to do on a Saturday afternoon. Um, if, if you look up uh, VA, VAT fraud carousels. Uh, VAT fraud is a huge way of making money uh, for the uh, for the nefarious. Uh, you know, I, I remember giving my uncle Terry some advice on this uh, uh, way back when. <laughs> yeah, what you should have done with Uncle Terry is give him the advice before he did the criminal activity. Rather than, <laughs> that might have come in a lot more handy. Um, I say brilliant, Lauren Hardy. All Lauren Hardy is brilliant. Absolutely. Uh, and, uh, again, it also leads nicely, the EU mentioned leads nicely onto our penultimate question, which comes from Brent Wall. Um, Brent says, will Brentford's business and transfer model, which is mainly picking up cheaper, underrated non-English players, be badly affected by Brexit? Last season, only six of Brentford's 22-member senior squad had British passports. Um, I I think there will be uh, an impact going forwards uh, as far as Brentford is concerned. If you actually take a look at their player sales They've nearly always tended to be English or English qualified players. I think, with the exception of Neil Mope in, in recent years um, and, and Ben Rama. Um, but um, for people unfamiliar with uh, with the Brentford model, Brentford scrapped their academy team uh, mm. a few years ago because uh, owner Matthew Benham felt that there was an awful lot of talent being thrown away. In England, so therefore they set up a B team to recruit mm. players who are being released by, especially by London clubs, yeah. um, at the ages of sixteen and seventeen. Mm. And also, um, uh, Matthew Benham he owns uh, an organisation called Smart Odds. He is a very very clever guy indeed. He used to work in the city, um, and uh, he was a big. Uh, a big fan of uh, things such as XG, and I know that XG is not uh, it is not in isolation a, a way of assessing uh, an individual player. But they they were using metrics to identify yeah. players who were not delivering as well as you thought that they should do, um, and that meant that those players tended to be available very cheaply. Uh, as, as far from, as a recruitment perspective was concerned. Um, and, and Brentford have taken that approach to recruit. And, and Matthew Benham's view was, um, in in the medium term, um, the odds tend to sort themselves out. So if if you've only scored eight goals, but XG says you should have, should, should have scored 14, mm. the chances are, you know, a couple of years later, you'll be getting those 14 goals and, and therefore your value in the market will increase. So that that has formed the basis of the Brentford model. When it comes to recruiting players from the EU, um, previously, of course, we've had freedom of movement of labour, which has allowed Brentford to recruit players uh, from from the continent um, and bring them directly to to England. Um, What you now have to do is that it's a points-based system and you have to submit what's referred to as a GBE, a governing body endorsement, which is effectively um, a letter to the Home Office saying, 
we think this player should be recruited, even if he doesn't have enough points. Now, of course, the nature of the people that uh, Brentford are recruiting is that they probably aren't going to have enough points because if they've been uh, perhaps not their, their performances on paper haven't actually been as good as their performances based on the data analytics they're less likely to be picked up as for an international team. They're less likely to be playing in the Champions League. And it's it's those metrics which are big drivers in, in terms of giving you points to allow you to come in under the, the new system which has been introduced by the Home Office. So, yes, it will be a challenge for Brentford. What I would say, however, as, as a... Uh, as a Premier League team, that's going to help them in terms of recruitment mm. to a greater extent than if they were a championship team. I'm genuinely really excited about Brentford being in the Premier League. Yeah. It's one of the brilliant things about the Pyramid when a team that, however many decades, are in the top division. It's just like Brentford, Chelsea, Brentford, Man United, it just really trips off the tongue. In fact, if producer guy is still listening or has started listening, I never know what end of the poddy begins and ends with. Um, it would be lovely to get somebody on from Brentford to find out what it's like to prepare financially for life mm. in the Premier League. I'd find that really interesting. I would suggest my mate Billy the Bee, but he'd be for a different podcast, to be perfectly honest. <laughs> uh, he'd be very good on it, but he wouldn't be ideal for this one. But yeah, we figured, I'd be fascinated. So I was, was really interested when Palace got promoted in 2013 probably a couple of years ahead of when we thought we would, how how much it actually costs you to be in the Premier League in terms of all the improvements and stuff you've got to make. Oh, so yeah. If we could yeah. get somebody from Brentford to chat about that, that would be lovely. Um, and our final question uh, is a good news question, and it comes from Alex Artinian. And Alex says, with the announcement of the 2023 FIFA Women's World Cup being hosted in Australia and New Zealand, how large a financial and commercial boost can we expect to our local football federation and the game here in Australia. Will there be an impact on the men's game as well or are the two essentially separate in thinking? Okay, well, well, first of all, congratulations to Australia and New Zealand. Um, I I think it will be a fantastic tournament. Yeah, absolutely. Um, In terms of economic boost, um, one of the greatest myths in modern life is that hosting an Olympics or a World Cup final or any other major sporting event has a huge positive impact upon the local economy. Oh, oh really? But, but what what you will see is when um, when the when the local football association is pitching this, it tends to pitch it to local government, to, sorry, to the national government, and therefore it will get a, a firm of management consultants along, and, and they will put together a glossy brochure which will say yeah, this it will make this this number of millions of dollars of yeah. uh, boost to the economy. Uh, infrastructure benefits, uh, tourism benefits, uh, and so on. Then the tournament takes place. And you know, let, let's be honest, uh, uh, the Olympics in 2012 was fantastic. Yeah. Yeah, it was, you know, for a month, it was abs, it was an absolute ball. And I, I was lucky enough, I went to see, uh, to see some of the Olympics football and I went to the, uh, volleyball at Earl's Court. Oh, wow. And it was Poland versus Russia. I wow. didn't realize, I did not realize just how much the Poles hate the Russians. Oh, mate. My really? <laughs> God. Yeah. It was, it, it was, it was like, uh, it was like the Coliseum. Yeah. Um, and it was an amazing occasion and I absolutely loved it. But you know what? What's happened to the Olympic Stadium 
since then. It's now being occupied by West Ham. It cost you know hundreds of millions of pounds to convert it from an athletics track to a football ground. That's all been borne by by the taxpayer. If we take a look at some of the other venues, um, you know they've either been left to rot. Uh, I, again, I was fortunate enough to to be in South Africa for the 2010 World Cup. Went around to see some of the matches. I, I went I went back to Cape Town with the Baroness a, a couple of years ago, and the stadium used for the World Cup is effectively left to, to rot and ruin. Right. Uh, it's the same we've seen in Brazil, where some of the new grounds were were built in unusual places in Brazil, and you know an airport and, and a, a railway station was used, and they're not being used since. So, um. If you've got existing resources which can be simply rebadged for a tournament such as the World Cup, then you, there could be a small benefit. But even if uh, I, I was looking uh, when I was researching this, I was looking at a, uh, a post-economic impact report on Germany in what Germany was two thousand and six, mm. and the conclusion was it made a naught point one percent boost to the German economy for two months, and that was it. Um, so, right. you know, great, great summer, uh, great memories, um, and there's lots of positives uh, in that light. But in terms of long-term economic boost, not really. Uh, has it made a boost to uh, the health of the nation? You know, uh, no. You know, it, you know, I, I can remember being a kid, and I'm sure you were the same, is uh, you, know, you used to go and watch Wimbledon, and then you'd, you'd go outside uh, in the road uh, with your wooden tennis racket uh, bought from Woolworths and you'd knock a ball around with one of your mates during Wimbledon and then nothing would happen for another 12 months. Um, it, these, these things don't have a long-term impact uh, upon countries in terms of economic. It, it is for, certainly there are political benefits uh, on a local basis. You can say, I brought us the World Cup, I brought us the Olympics and uh, you know, local politicians get their opportunity to have their photographs next to Usain Bolt or Cristiano Ronaldo or Lionel Messi. So, so there are benefits from, from that perspective, but from an economic point of view, it's a myth. Are you sure you were brought up in South London, Kieran? Because throughout my childhood, in my part of South London, if you rushed out of the house with a wooden tennis racket and started knocking the ball up against the wall, you'd have got a slap round the head. It's, <laughs> it's, it's, it's always been one of my big problems with, with tennis. It's like you watch football and you go down the park with a couple of jumpers and you play football. You can't go down the park with a massive high chair and four blokes and a blazer and play tennis, Kieran. So, <laughs> no, that never, it, didn't ha- it certainly didn't happen in, in my part of doing um, I can't remember which book I read it in. I was reading a fantastic book recently about the history of sports rivalries. Um, Hungary v Russia, water polo at the Olympics. Oh, really? in, at the Olympics in 1956, shortly after Russia had had parked the tanks in uh, Budapest, was apparently uh, by repute the bloodiest game ever played in any sport. There's a, there's a wow. brilliant description of the water turning red as angry Hungarian water polo players took it out on the Russian players. Apparently it's quite a physical game anyway, but it's it's a yes. really it's a really interesting thing to read about. Um thank you Alex for that question. Uh, you just know that a tournament in Australia and New Zealand is going to be good, don't you really? Yeah, um, yeah. And yeah. also it gives Sport, you sporting nations. Absolutely, and it gives you an excuse to be up at a strange not that we need an excuse to be up at a strange <laughs> time. But, sorry darling, I'm, I'm watching Finland play Luxembourg. Uh, if you would like to make a small monthly contribution to our pod, 
Uh, that would be very kind of you. Please go to patreon.com forward slash price of football. And if you have a question you'd like answered on the show, it is, of course, questions at priceoffootball.com, and we will endeavour to answer them for you. I say we, I'll ask it, and Kieran will answer it. Um, in the meantime, I'll pass you across to Mr. Maguire for his customary farewell. Okay, folks. Well, thanks once again for the feedback and uh, all those people that turned up on the quiz. I hope you had as much fun uh, as we did. Uh, the my good lady wife, the Baroness, is feeling slightly sheepish uh, about uh, her comments about uh, the Russian girlfriend. Um, but uh, <laughs> perfectly justified comments about the Russian girlfriend. I might. I would like to add. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Well. Yeah. I, I'm. You know. I've, I've moved on from there. As I keep pointing out. Uh, <laughs> Well, especially not, as I'm banned, I'm banned from going to Russia these you, days. So. You have, you've, you've moved on, but not to the extent that we don't still talk about her every time we meet. <laughs> <laughs> well, that was that was my that was my great Olympic event. <laughs> was it? Yes, she 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 was a she was a, a member of the I think was it the 1992 Olympic team for. For, I can't remember what, what it was. Was it rowing or it was something? But it was uh, yeah, com- com- completely out of my league. Wow. Um, anyhow, uh, back back to uh, thank you for for coming on to the quiz. Um, thanks for all the uh, the feedback. Uh, it, it does make a difference. Uh, you know, e- even even from those those Celtic fans who think we we are in the pay of Rangers Football Club. If we are in the pay of Rangers Football Club, producer guys kept all the money and certainly given none to, to myself or Kevin. Um, but if you could give us a review, give us five stars on the Apple Podcast uh, and, uh, and and follow the follow the podcast. Uh, that would be really great. It, it helps us uh, in the charts, and uh, yeah, when we're trying to guess, when we're trying to get guests, uh, that, that's one of the things they look at. You know, who are these two idiots? Uh, and we're not doing too badly in the charts. You know, we don't, we don't pretend to be uh, a, a a mainstream show. It is a niche show in, in terms of the finances of football, but uh, it does add to our credibility. Other than that. Enjoy as many matches a day as you can squeeze in without getting sacked at work, and uh, we'll see you soon. Bye. The price of football. I'm for the